Revelation 5. Last Sunday, it was the first day of the new year, 2012, and we looked at the question, how are we to begin this new year? This, in fact, led to a series of other questions, the primary question being, what does it mean to be a Christian? As I said, being a Christian is not primarily about something we've done with our heads or even our hearts. And it's not something primarily we've figured out that we live out in our moral lives. It's not something that we start to enjoy in common with other people, and so we hang out. Uh, and then we all go to church. No, to be a Christian is to be one who worships the true God. This is the beginning point. It is always to be the beginning point. We looked last week at Revelation 4 and 5. Through John's eyes, we see what goes on in heaven. And that is, in a word, worship. Worship is acknowledging the worth of something or someone. It is recognizing and saying that that something or someone is worthy of praise. It is celebrating the worth of someone or something that is far superior to ourselves. In chapter 4, we see 24 elders sitting on thrones and four creatures. The four creatures, we are told, day and night, never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And in a response of sorts, the 24 elders, we read, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. In chapter five, we looked at, we saw John sees a figure uh, next to the throne, who is holding a scroll. We come to realize that this scroll represents God's future purposes through which the world will either be healed or judged. There's a problem is, there's a problem that is no one is worthy to open this scroll. But then a new creature is seen, the lion from the tribe of Judah, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. And the response to his being worthy is, in fact, worship. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. As we saw last week, this is what worship is about. It is the glad response of praise. It is directed to God the Creator, the one who created the world, and to God the Savior, the one who is recreating the world. We have the new creation and so this praise comes from creation. You notice that every creature in heaven and earth, because they recognize their creator. But it also comes from the new creation. 
that acknowledges the triumph of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. I mentioned last Sunday that a key component, a critical component of true worship, of correct worship, is theology. That is to understand, to know about God. After all, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Worship is not a mindless activity. And how is it that we are to know about the Creator? How is it that we are to know about the Savior? In our worship, it is our practice, it's not unique to us, all of God's people, we recount every Sunday the story of creation and of the new creation. We talk about the fact that God has made the world and he is still at work in our lives and the lives of others. And where do we get this information? Where do we find out about creation and new creation? In scripture. This is why the reading of scripture is a part of our worship. Publicly, it should be a part of our worship privately. The reason we read scripture is not simply to be reminded or to be informed about certain things, things perhaps we've forgotten, but it is, in fact, a way of celebrating who God is and what he has done. Again, I mentioned last Sunday that from scripture, from the reading of scripture, flows prayer and other aspects of worship. It is prayer that I want us to consider today. We have, in fact, studied the matter of prayer in the past. We have seen that prayer is answering speech. That is, it is our part of a conversation, our part of a dialogue. The critical question or the issue that we looked at as we began our series on prayer was, who begins the conversation? If it is a conversation, if it is a dialogue, who speaks first? As I said then, I will say again, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. This is the critical question. If we think we begin the conversation, then it colors the way we view prayer. But if, in fact, we believe that God began the conversation and we are responding to him in prayer, then that's an entirely different matter. So let's ask ourselves, who was the first person to speak? We go back to the beginning and we see in Genesis 1 that it was God in creation when he said things like, let there be light. Have you ever wondered, why did God speak? Why didn't he simply think the world into being? Or why didn't he simply snap his fingers, so to speak, and the world, no doubt, he could do that. Why speaking? Why this emphasis on words? The emphasis is so pervasive in scripture, by the way, a collection of words, in case we've forgotten that, that I think that we take it for granted. We also do so with regard to human existence. That being human is so closely tied to the ability to speak that to be permanently and thoroughly speechless, I think, is a great terror to us. It's something that we find very difficult to imagine. I think it is this, in part, that reflects the image of God. That God is a speaking God. We are made in his image and then thus we are made to speak. God spoke the world into being, and then he spoke to those he had created. God said, let there be light, but there's more than that. In Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. What we find here is a conversation that is going on between the members of the Trinity. 
We don't see this as clearly, perhaps, when we are still in Genesis 1. But as we come into the New Testament, we find that the word who became flesh, interestingly enough, the choice of words, the word that became flesh, is described as the creator of all things. Back in Genesis 1, we read about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So when we think of creation, it is not simply a single being that is doing this. We have the three members of the Trinity who are participating in this. And we have a conversation as it comes to the matter of making us, we who are made in God's image. There's a deliberate word by which God creates. You might say, okay, enough. What is the point? We are made in the image of this God, this conversing, this dialoguing God. So when we speak, when we converse, when we respond, we are in fact reflecting the image of God. But when it comes to the conversation between us and God, let's be clear, God began the conversation. He was the first one to speak. Adam was not the first one to speak. And therefore we would say, well, that, that's the province of humanity. We are the speakers. We are the first speakers. No, we are the responders. We respond to God who speaks. We've talked about these things in the past. What I'd like us to think about today is prayer within the context of worship. There is a verse in Revelation 5 that we did not read today, that we did not read last Sunday, that I will take as our text. Verse 7 gives us the context. It is verse number 8 that I want us to consider. He, that is the Lamb, came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I would suggest to you that what John sees here in his vision is that we, who are God's people, in our prayers participate in the worship of the Lamb and him who sits on the throne. As John sees it, that worship is found in our prayers. It is, in fact, in prayer that we find the overlap between heaven and earth. We talked about this in our study of Galatians, what's been called the already, not yet, or one author puts it, now, not yet. Perhaps easier to remember. The earth, here we are now, has yet to be redeemed to be like heaven, God's present. When Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray, he gave them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And in it, we hear this overlap. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we live at a point where heaven and earth, where future and present are crunching together. You, you hear this in Paul, and I think it's oftentimes misunderstood. You know, these are the last days. This is, in a sense, time is being compressed because heaven and earth are coming together. This is the redeeming, the redemption of all things. This is where we live. And part of that reality is that we are to pray. At least we should. It is the connection of this overlap between heaven and earth. But how are we to pray? This, I think, is a question I'm asked more often than not. Like it or not, we are affected by the culture that surrounds us. 
I remember when we studied prayer, one of the first things I said in the series is that I think everybody prays. It's something that humans do. I think it's part of being made in God's image. We find this need to respond. The problem is most people do not pray the correct way. What are our options when it comes to pray? Well, actually, there's only one correct way to pray, but there are incorrect ways that infiltrate our prayer lives. The first possibility, which I think may be remote, but it is there, and that is we may pray like pantheists. Pantheism is the belief that everything is divine, that divinity is everywhere. Francis Schaeffer used to call it not pantheism, but pan-everythingism. It was just that everything is divine, which means that when it comes to prayer, you're not talking to someone. It isn't a conversation unless it's a conversation with yourself, that somehow you try to get in touch with the inner truth, the inner life. And somewhere deep down within you is the truth. And this is where meditation comes in. And then we get confused because the Bible speaks of meditating. This is not what it's talking about. But this, I think, oftentimes comes into our prayer lives so that oftentimes we're not talking to God as much as perhaps we're talking to ourselves. This is not Christian prayer. We may also pray like deists. Um, This, I think, is far more common among God's people, particularly today. Deism believes that God created the world and then he sort of has left us alone. And in this view, um, prayer is, in a sense, shouting across this great void to a distant deity who may or may not be able to hear you, who may or may not be inclined to hear you, uh, to listen to you, um, who may, in fact, not even want to help you. But you sort of throw these prayers out, hoping that something will happen. It is very much uh, like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean and hoping that someone somewhere someday will hear what you have to say and then possibly do something about it. Without question, there are times of darkness and despair and frustration when this is what prayer may feel like. As the psalmist put it, when it seems that heaven has become bronze, your prayers just bounce back. Or they just sort of disappear into a black hole of nothingness. But this is not what we should think as we pray. We are to pray as those who are redeemed. When Jesus began to preach, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by this, he did not mean, I've got a new way or I've got the way for you all to get to heaven. Rather, he is announcing that the very rule of heaven, the life of heaven, is now overlapping with the earth in a new way. And now prayer has come of age. And it is in Jesus that heaven and earth overlap. It is where he stands. It is where he died. It is where he was raised from the dead. Living as God's people, living as Christians, we are living in a world that is slowly but surely being reshaped by the grace of God, by the Son of God, by the Spirit of God. This means, by the way, that prayer is not as easy as we might imagine. Even though everyone prays, not everyone prays correctly, 
and it is not as easy as we might imagine. We are not left alone, however. There is help. But here, here is the rub, I think, for many of us. Being modern people, we imagine that we can do things on our own. And I think we're worried that if we get any outside help, our prayers will not be authentic. Today in the Prayer of Confession, we read something that was written over 15 centuries ago by Augustine of Hippo. And perhaps there's a part of us that sort of chafes against that and says that's not really authentic because that's something that somebody else wrote. Both the Romantic movement and existentialism, I think, have produced the idea that the only authentic thing, the, thing, the only thing that is authentic is that which comes spontaneously from deep within our being. That sort of unbidden, it just sort of comes from us. There is some aspect of truth to that. When we see the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll, we see creation spontaneously worshiping him. But it is in response to a reality that the Lamb of God is worthy to open the scroll. By the way, if you think about what Jesus said about what comes spontaneously out of our hearts, it it wasn't good. Okay, in Matthew, uh, for out of the overflow of the heart, the man speaks. And then later on, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So if we think that prayer must be only the spontaneous thing that comes out of us, I think we will be sadly disappointed. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. He didn't say, listen, guys, you just need to look deep within yourselves. He didn't say, just let it flow naturally from out of your heart. He understood the question and he answered the question. They wanted a form of words, something that they could use, something that they could learn from. We call this the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer is not the only prayer we have in Scripture. Throughout the Scriptures, we have people praying and some of their prayers are recorded. We have the book of Psalms, which is not only a book of songs, but really a book of prayers. I'm reminded of what Dennis Hack told us years ago. Um, Dennis Hack is with Ransom Fellowship, one of the ministries that we support. He mentioned a great tragedy in his family. One of his children, one of his daughters, was violently violated. I, I, I cannot imagine the pain that Dennis and his wife felt at that time. But Dennis told us, quite frankly, that for over a year after that, he could not pray. The pain, the anger was so great. But in fact, he did pray. And what he found was that he could pray the Psalms. And for a year and a half after this horrible event, not what comes spontaneously out of the heart, but what is written in Scripture was what he prayed. We have help in scripture. 
for this difficult task of praying. We have not been left alone. One could argue that Christian prayer is simple, so simple that a child can pray. And a child can even pray the prayer that Jesus gave us, the pattern that we are to follow. But it is also difficult. It makes demands on us. If you imagine what those demands are, I would have you to consider Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you imagine when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, brings no difficulties with it? Was it not in the garden that Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done? Do we imagine that we will not face moments like that? It isn't my intent at this point in the sermon to make you feel guilty, but I do want to ask a question and to suggest some answers that I hope in the process will be a benefit to us. Why don't we pray as we should? I'm making an assumption there, but I think it is common to us as people that we do not pray as we should. Let me suggest some things. First of all, laziness. You say, wait a minute, I I thought you weren't going to play the guilt card. Um, I simply want you to consider... The reality is that I think we do have the time, but we don't make the time to pray. We find the time to do what we want to do, the things that we consider important, but we don't when it comes to prayer. Second thing I would suggest to you is pride. Not usually the thing that comes to mind, but in fact, I think it is pride and a sense of independence. We think that we don't need to pray. We've got it covered until we hit a bump in the road, we hit a crisis, and then, okay, then you break the glass and bring out prayer, and then you get involved in a life of prayer. This is pride. This is independence. This is a failure to understand that prayer is part of a conversation. In essence, we are saying, God, you can talk all you want. We're only going to answer when we feel like it. But no, we don't actually think of prayer that way, do we? We think we begin the conversation. And then God has to answer us. No, we are answering God when we pray. Which leads to the third reason I think we don't pray is we don't listen. If prayer is a conversation, a dialogue that God has begun, I don't think we're listening. By the way, has this ever happened to you where you're talking to someone and they're not paying attention? They don't listen? And you, you get a sense of that because they don't respond. Or when they do respond, it has nothing to do with what you've just said to them. I would suggest that that's what much Christian prayer is like. God is speaking to us and we're not listening. And whenever we get ready to talk, we change the subject because we haven't been listening to what God has been saying. We might well imagine that God is some distant deity, like the deists say, that our prayers are hurled across this dark void to someone who may or may not be listening, to someone who may or may not care, to someone who may or may not be able to answer us. The fourth thing I would suggest is we do not pray as we should because prayer is difficult. We, in fact, need help. I don't think that we intuitively know this. I think we imagine that prayer is easy, that, yeah, you just pray. But then when we find that we do not pray as we should, perhaps we should ask ourselves, maybe prayer isn't as easy as we imagine. 
And I would suggest to you that it is difficult. We've rejected both the pantheistic and the deistic options or models of prayer, but the Christian option is not easy. Consider this, that prayer has both intimacy and reverence or awe together. Intimacy and reverence or awe. I've said this before in the past, when Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray, if he had stopped after the first two words, it would have been revolutionary. When he said, Our Father, that's, that was unheard of. This was revolutionary. It was, if you wish, a paradigm shift. Things had changed after this. The possibility, the reality that you can call God your Father is amazing. And as we learn elsewhere, including in Galatians, it's not simply a formal title. It's not that Jesus is changing the rules and now instead of saying God or Jehovah or Yahweh, now we say Father. It speaks of intimacy. Paul told the Galatians, because you are sons, God sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Father is not simply a title. Abba speaks of intimacy. Whatever term you use for your father, dad, daddy, papa, whatever, this is how we are to address God. It points to a close and intimate relationship. Our father is speaking to us. And as his children, we are to respond in that tone. But that's only one part. On the other hand, there is to be reverence and awe. And here's the rub. Give me a choice of one of the two. And I think humanly, I think, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do the intimate path to prayer. Or reverence, fear, trembling, awe, I can do that. But to do the, the two things at the same time in the same prayer, I think is immensely difficult. In fact, it seems almost impossible. And in fact, it is, if we are left to our own devices. But as Paul told the Galatians, we have not been left alone. We have the Spirit of God's Son. As he told the Romans in Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So we're not alone. We have the gift of the Spirit. We have the gift of Scripture. But let's get back to the matter of reverence. Immediately in the Lord's Prayer, after the words, Our Father, we hear, Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And here it is, at the beginning of the prayer, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, intimacy and awe, intimacy and reverence. But this leads, I think, to the last reason, I think, why we don't pray as we should. And that is the absence of worship or a lack of worship. This is where reverence comes in. What is worship again? It is acknowledging the worth of something or someone. It is recognizing and saying that something or someone is worthy of praise. It is celebrating the worth of someone or something far superior to ourselves. And it is in Scripture that we learn of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
We learn of creation and new creation. We learn of what God has done, is doing, and will do to redeem his creation. We learn about the Lamb who was slain, as we read in Revelation 5. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This should lead to worship. It does in heaven. It should lead to prayer. Prayer is so much more than presenting God with a list of requests. That has its place in prayer, by the way. Supplication. It's much more than asking God for what you want. We call this petition. It is much more than pouring out your heart to God. That is a part of prayer. But prayer is to involve worship. We are to join with heaven the heavenly host, in worshiping. And we do that in our prayers, in part. So we read golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As I said at the beginning, being a Christian is not primarily about something you've done with your head or your heart. It isn't primarily the way you live your life. It isn't the fact that we hang out with people who are like us. Oh, and if we have the time, we go to church. No, being a Christian begins with the fact of worship. To be a Christian is to worship the true God. And to worship God must involve prayer. Last Sunday, I mentioned two principles that we should keep in mind when it comes to the matter of worship. The first is you become like what you worship. We see this throughout Scripture. That's one of the reasons, besides that it's false, that idolatry is so devastating is because you end up becoming like the thing you worship. And it's a false God. It's false. It's man-made. And you become less than human. When we worship the true God, this is the second principle, we become truly human. Here we stand at the beginning of a new year. Let us, individually, as a congregation, let us covenant to spend time in prayer. And that in our prayer, worship would be found. Yes, there would be intimacy as we recognize that God isn't some faraway deity. He is our Father who loves us. As Peter says, cast all your cares on, you, on him because he cares for you. So yes, there is intimacy. But there's also to be reverence. There is to be fear and trembling as we recognize who God is. One last thing. In First Peter, Peter writes, Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Something for us to consider. We need to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can pray. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to you, maker of heaven and earth. You are the creator, but also through
through your Son you have redeemed, you are redeeming, you will redeem creation. You have saved us. We bow before you with gratitude. We thank you that you have not left us alone. That you are there and you're not silent. The problem is we're not listening. Being the people of our time, we want to be independent and to think that we can do things on our own. And we think for our prayers to be genuine and to be real, they have to just sort of flow out of our hearts. And yet oftentimes what is in our hearts is not that pleasant. Help us to see our need of help as we stand, in a sense, between heaven and earth, the overlap, as we embrace you as our Father and bow before you as our God. I thank you that you've not abandoned us. You haven't left us alone. You've given us your spirit, and you've given us one another. May we pray for one another. May we learn from one another in the matter of prayer. And may our prayers be like those golden bowls of incense in your presence, representing our worship. May we be people of prayer in this coming year, by your grace and your spirit. Now we ask that your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together. We do pray in a special way for Jack, that you would touch him, you would give the doctors insight and wisdom, they could figure out what's going on, and that you would restore his health. Go with us now as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We'll sing the doxology together.